Hello and welcome to the Climate Change Weekly Podcast. This is episode 11. This week we're going to be talking about how some big corporations are prepared to put their own profits and their own self-interest ahead of the well-being of their customers and in some cases the entire world. Now unfortunately there have been many instances of this behaviour over the last few decades. We've talked about one of them in an earlier podcast which was the Volkswagen Dieselgate saga. We're all familiar with the tobacco industry and the link to lung cancer that they denied for many, many years. Today I'm going to tell you the story of another example which you may well not be aware of. Um, and this has all been prompted by the revelations that ExxonMobil's own scientists told them decades ago of the impact of selling their products would have on the atmosphere and predicted very accurately the level of CO2 and the amount of warming that that would cause. Before we dive into that, I just want to explain why there has been no podcast for the last two weeks. I actually prepared a podcast last week, but wasn't very happy with the content, didn't feel it was good enough, and so I never released it. In the last podcast I did release, I asked for people to go and post reviews, and during the two weeks following that, I didn't get a single new reviews. And with listener numbers not rising significantly, no reviews, and no one seeming to be particularly interested in the content I was producing, I basically had given up. Funny thing happened was uh, during the two weeks I didn't produce a podcast, the number of listeners and the number of followers increased pretty dramatically. I'm not quite sure what that says about my content, if people prefer me not to produce one than to produce one. But anyway, so in, just in the last seven days, I've had an extra almost 50 people start following on Spotify. And I realized that Although I ask people to post reviews, if you're on Spotify, there isn't any opportunity to add a review or a star. All you can do is follow, and lots of people have been following. So uh, maybe I misinterpreted the response to that. So in any event, I've decided that there are people out there listening that do care about the message, and so I'm going to carry on. This week, I'm going to tell you a story about lead in gasoline and then draw some comparisons with the behaviour of ExxonMobil in relation to the climate crisis. The story of lead in gasoline is beautifully set out in Bill Bryson's book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, which I recommend everybody read. And in chapter 10, entitled Getting the Lead Out, he says this. In the late 1940s, a graduate student at the University of Chicago named Claire Patterson was using a new method of lead isotope measurement to try and get a definitive age for the Earth at last. Unfortunately, all his samples came up contaminated, usually wildly so, most contained something like 200 times the levels of lead that would normally be expected to occur. Many years would pass before Patterson realised that the reason for this lay with a regrettable Ohio inventor named Thomas Midgley Jr. Midgley was an engineer by training and the world would no doubt have been a safer place if he'd stayed so. Instead, he developed an interest in industrial applications of chemistry. In 1921, while working for the General Motors Research Corporation in Daytona, Ohio, he investigated a compound called tetraethyl lead and discovered that it significantly reduced the juddering condition known as engine knock. Even though lead was widely known to be dangerous, by the early years of the 20th century it could be found in all manner of consumer products. Food came in cans sealed with lead solder, water was often stored in lead-lined tanks, it was sprayed onto fruit as a pesticide in the form of lead arsenate. It even came as part of packaging and toothpaste tubes. Hardly a product existed that didn't bring a little lead into consumers' lives. 
However, nothing gave it a greater or more lasting intimacy than its addition to gasoline. Lead is a neurotoxin. Get too much of it and you can irreparably damage the brain and central nervous system. Among the many symptoms associated with overexposure are blindness, insomnia, kidney failure, hearing loss, cancer, palsies and convulsions. In its most acute form, it produces abrupt and terrifying hallucinations, disturbing to victims and onlookers alike, which generally then give way to a coma and death. You really don't want to get too much lead into your system. On the other hand, lead was easy to extract and work and almost embarrassingly profitable to produce industrially. And tetraethyl lead did indubitably stop engines from knocking. So in 1923, three of America's largest corporations, General Motors, DuPont and Standard Oil, formed a joint enterprise called the Ethyl Gasoline Corporation with a view to making as much tetraethyl lead as the world was willing to buy. And that proved to be a very great deal. They called their additive ethyl because it sounded friendlier and less toxic than lead and introduced it for public consumption, in more ways than most people realised, on February the 1st, 1923. Almost at once, production workers began to exhibit the staggering gait and confused faculties that marked the recently poisoned. Also, almost at once, the Ethyl Corporation embarked on a policy of calm but unyielding denial that would serve it well for decades. When employees at one plant developed irreversible delusions, a spokeswoman blandly informed reporters... These men probably went insane because they worked too hard. Altogether, at least 15 workers died in the early days of production of leaded gasoline, and untold numbers of others became ill, often violently so. The exact numbers are unknown because the company nearly always managed to hush up news of embarrassing leakages, spills and poisonings. At times, however, suppressing the news became impossible, most notably in 1924, when in a matter of days five production workers died and 35 more were turned into permanent staggering wrecks at a single ill-ventilated facility. As rumours circulated about the dangers of the product, Ethel's ebullient inventor Thomas Midgley decided to hold a demonstration for reporters to allay their concerns. As he chatted away about the company's commitment to safety, he poured tetraethyl lead over his hands then held a beaker of it to his nose for 60 seconds, claiming all the while that he could repeat the procedure daily without harm. In fact, Midgley knew all too well of the perils of lead poisoning. He had himself been made seriously ill from overexposure a few months earlier, and now, except when reassuring journalists, never went near the stuff if he could help it. I'm just going to skip over a section about Thomas Midgley's other awful invention, which was CFCs, and how Patterson eventually came up with a definitive age for the Earth of 4,550 million years, and we pick up the story like this. His main work done, Patterson now turned his attention to the nagging question of all that lead in the atmosphere. He was astounded to find that what little was known about the effects of lead in humans was almost invariably wrong or misleading, and not surprisingly, he discovered, since for 40 years every study of lead's effects had been funded exclusively by manufacturers of lead additives. In one such study, a doctor with no specialised training in chemical pathology undertook a five-year programme in which volunteers were asked to breathe in or swallow lead in elevated quantities. Then their urine and faeces were tested. Unfortunately, as the doctor appears not to have known, lead is not excreted as a waste product. Rather, it accumulates in the bones and blood. And that's what makes it so dangerous. And neither bone nor blood was tested. In consequence, lead was given a clean bill of health. Patterson quickly established that we had a lot of lead in the atmosphere, still do in fact, since lead never goes away. 
and that about 90% of it appeared to come from automobile exhaust pipes. But he couldn't prove it. What he needed was a way to compare lead levels in the atmosphere to levels that existed before 1923 when tetraethyl lead was introduced. It occurred to him that ice cores could provide the answer. What Patterson found was that before 1923, there was almost no lead in the atmosphere, and that since that time, its level had climbed steadily and dangerously. He now made it his life's work to get lead taken out of gasoline. To that end, he became a constant and often vocal critic of the lead industry and its interest. It would prove to be a hellish campaign. Ethel was a powerful global corporation with many friends in high places. Patterson suddenly found research funding withdrawn and more difficult to acquire. The American Petroleum Institute cancelled a research contract with him, as did the United States Public Health Service, a supposedly neutral government institution. As Patterson increasingly became a liability to his institution, the school trustees were repeatedly pressed by lead industry officials to shut him up and let him go. Absurdly, he was excluded from a 1971 National Research Council panel appointed to investigate the dangers of atmospheric lead poisoning, even though he was, by now, unquestionably the leading expert on atmospheric lead. To his great credit, Patterson never wavered or buckled. Eventually, his efforts led to the introduction of the Clean Air Act of 1970 and finally to the removal from sale of all leaded gasoline in the United States in 1986. Almost immediately, lead levels in the blood of Americans fell by 80%. But because lead is forever, those of us alive today have about 625 times more lead in our blood than people did a century ago. So, I told this story because for every greedy executive at a corporation like Ethel or ExxonMobil, we're going to need a hero like Claire Patterson, who's willing to stand up and do the right thing, even at great personal cost. And for each of us, we need to choose which side do we want to be on. Do we want to be like the greedy executive, or do we want to be more like Claire Patterson and do our part and do the right thing? The other reason I tell the story is that I think it's important for us all to be able to recognise a company that's behaving in the way Ethel did, uh, the way the tobacco industry did. So let's talk about some of the common tactics. They cite fake experts, place impossible demands on the science, cherry-pick data, impugn the integrity of individual scientists and the scientific process, and appeal to conspiracy theorists. They leave the public with a perpetual impression there are lots of unresolved questions and uncertainty about the science. And this is exactly what the lead industry did. With tetraethyl lead, they sponsored research. Um, they appointed basically quacks to run a five-year program, apparently, to assess the impact of lead on health and reported the things that it didn't cause and ignore the things that it did. Um, a similar thing's been going on with the sugar industry and there's a good book called The Case Against Sugar. It's quite a hard read. I did manage to get all the way through it. It probably mentions the word sugar at least 2,000 times. But in that book, they make a basically a very, very convincing case that sugar is responsible for most of the so-called Western diseases, obesity, diabetes, heart disease and many others. And again, the sugar industry has paid for research to try and discredit artificial sweeteners. So they, in one particular piece of research, they fed rats the equivalent of drinking 700 cans of Coke a day that had been sweetened by saccharin, and then found that, oh, at that level, the rats could get cancer. Well, yes, maybe they could. But of course, if they'd drunk 700 cans of sugar-sweetened Coke, they would have died much sooner of something else. So it was hardly, hardly relevant. And it's kind of 
again, created this impression amongst the public that artificial sweeteners are dangerous, whereas in fact there's much more evidence that sugar's really dangerous and artificial sweeteners, there's very little evidence that it's dangerous. But um, they've created that doubt in people's minds. In a similar vein, the big oil industry have sponsored stories about electric cars bursting into flames. And, you know, this is one that gets spread around a lot when, a, when an electric car bursts into flames, a lit- lithium-ion battery catches fire and can't be put out by the fire service. Well, yes, that can be true. But again, they're cherry-picking examples. And if you look at the statistics, I think you'll find that you're eight times more likely to have an internal combustion engine car burst into flames during an accident than you are in a battery electric car. So again, you cherry pick your examples and you, you can lodge these ideas in people's minds. In fact, I spoke to my dad some months ago about the idea of him getting an electric car and the first thing he said to me is, oh, they burst into flames. <laughs> so so it's, it's pretty clear that these things can get lodged into people's minds. And once they're there, they can sit there for many, many years and create doubt. And obviously that's been an approach that the climate deniers have taken, sponsoring basically quack experts to come up with ridiculous reports that say climate change is just a natural process. So linking this back to ExxonMobil and the hearings that are going on in a House subcommittee, here we hear Martin Hoffert, who was a scientist consultant at Exxon Research and Engineering in the 1980s, confirming that ExxonMobil knew the effects of their products on the environment as far back as the early 80s and were in fact able to accurately predict the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere right up until today. Dr. Hoffert, your work with Exxon was focused on the carbon cycle and climate modeling. I have a slide up here. Are you familiar with this graph from 1982? Can you uh, briefly explain what it shows? Sure. Uh, What it shows is a projection into the future of uh, carbon dioxide levels and uh, climate change associated with those uh, carbon dioxide levels. And, and it's a very accurate representation of what today's climate change actually is. So this was a model from 1982 with that, right. startlingly accurate projections into the present That's day. correct. The orange line shows the actual level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere through this year. Mm-hmm. And the blue line shows the actual average temperature change. So in 1982, Exxon accurately, 1982, seven years before I was even born, Exxon accurately predicted that by this year, 2019, the Earth would hit a carbon dioxide concentration of 415 parts per million and a temperature increase of one degree Celsius. Dr. Hoffert, is that correct? We were excellent scientists. <laughs> Yes, you were. Yes, you were. So they knew. Also in his testimony, he went on to say, what they did was wrong. They spread doubt about the dangers of climate change. The effect of this disinformation was to delay action internally and externally. As a result, in my opinion, homes and livelihoods will likely be destroyed and lives lost. So a pretty damning admission and... As you probably know, ExxonMobil is one of the top 20 companies which between them are responsible for one-third of carbon dioxide emissions since 1965. So here we are, we're in a situation where ExxonMobil are very much in the same situation as Tetra Ethyl Lead were in back in the 1970s where they had a product which they knew damn well was dangerous and was killing people, but they wanted to do whatever they could 
to maximise the revenue that they could get out of it as it declined. Because I think all the big oil companies now realise that oil will be in decline from here on in. Um, but they're still determined to do whatever they can to extract remaining profits and even to talk up the switch to natural gas or methane, um, which is actually very, very damaging to the planet as well, as, as we know, because one of the biggest problems with methane, even if you can burn it cleanly, is that extracting it, transporting it or piping it inevitably leads to many, many leaks and as a molecule of methane causes 80 times more warming than a molecule of CO2, we definitely don't want any more of it in the atmosphere than we have to. That's all for this week. Please do star or follow the podcast and share with others. And I'll see you again next time with another episode of Climate Change Weekly. Climate Change Weekly.